Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, team. And welcome again, church. We're glad that you're here for worship. As we continue to worship today, let's do grab our Bibles and let's turn into Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, uh, starting verse 16, is where we are going to be today. Uh, we are wrapping up our emphasis uh, on renewal. We have been praying for a season of renewal in all of us, and specifically us as a church. And in the midst of that season of renewal, we've asked all of us to begin praying about that. So we've been in the midst of also a season of prayer. Uh, we've asked all of us uh, to really enter into that in lots of different ways, and we've given you seven different ways of doing that. And look, we're not going to keep telling you this every single week uh, as we move forward, but this is going to kind of be the undercurrent of what's going on. And hopefully you've picked one of these uh, in addition to what you are no normally doing and said, hey, I want to be praying with the church about renewal, that we would see true spirit-filled renewal inside of us, revival inside of us. And we got lots of different ways of doing that. And so as we begin to wrap all that up, man, I hope that you will continue to be praying with us. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, is where we'll be in just a moment. As we were turning there, uh, way before memes, uh, we had cartoon strips. Does anybody remember those, like back in the day? Uh, this is like, that's what we had, like for fun. We didn't have all the devices yet. And, uh, and I remember uh, ones particularly, uh, they're little things that get stuck in your head. You don't know why. This is just one of those random things. It's still there for after all these years. I don't know why. It was a little just, it was a little one shot uh, from Calvin and Hobbes. Anybody remember Calvin and Hobbes? Remember? Uh, you got Calvin and his little, little, you know, tiger, Hobbes, who came to life and they had all kinds of adventures. Uh, but it's just a, a picture of this little kid, uh, Hobbes, or, or uh, yeah, and he's just, uh, or Calvin rather, and he just looks very dis disheveled and, and it's captured underneath it said, God put me on this earth to accomplish a certain number of tasks. And at this rate, I will never die. <laughs> never felt that way before. God's put me here to do a certain number of things and at my current rate, I'm just never going to get there. It's funny because it feels true. Like, and that was years ago, and things apparently haven't changed. Even though we've kind of been discombobulated and things have been different, already we feel too busy. We feel overwhelmed. There's too many things to accomplish. And in all kinds of different circumstances, we find ourselves saying to one another, I'm just, man, I, I, I can't get everything done. It just, it feels like it's too much. It's all on me and I can't get it all accomplished. And the result is we just feel overwhelmed. And that is something I'm hearing from everybody. We just assume it really is all up to me. I have to tackle everything. I must accomplish all of these things. The problem is that's impossible. We cannot actually take care of everything. We cannot actually do everything. But it begs the question, is it really all on us to begin with? And I think that's a question we need to look at. So today, uh, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 28, uh, starting in verse 16. Now, this is a famous passage in the church. It's called the Great Commission. You might see that title there uh, in your Bible. Uh, and we are at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus has died on the cross. He has resurrected. He has appeared to multiple people, but this is going to be his last physical appearance to the disciples. Right after this, we have the ascension. Jesus will ascend back to the Father. You say, well, how do you know that? That's actually not in this passage. That's true. But this passage, or actually this event, shows up three different times in Scripture. It's here at the end of Matthew. You find it at the end of Luke. And then you find it again at the beginning of Acts, which is also written by Luke. 
And if you put all three of those accounts together, you get a lot of different details that kind of show us what this was like. But Jesus is taking his apostles up on a mountain, and after he says this final charge, he's going to ascend into the heavens. And so look what it says here, starting in Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 16. It says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, again, this is a fairly familiar passage to me. Growing up in the church, I just heard this passage a lot. How many of you all heard this passage before? Right? A lot of us. Right? If you grew up in church, you, you might have heard this. We, it's even got a title. We call it the Great Commission. If somebody says the Great Commission, this is what they're talking about. If we ever had a missions conference or anything like that, this would be the passage that always comes up. We are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and behold, I'm with you always, all, even to the end of the age. The Lord is giving us this charge as he ascends back into heaven. But here's a question I want to ask this morning. When Jesus gives this charge, this commission to the apostles, is he giving it to them individually or is he giving it to them as a group? Think that through for just a second. When he gives the great commission, is he talking to 11 individual people and giving 11 different commissions, or is he giving a single commission to all of them together? Because depending on how you interpret it would change how you react to it. It would change how we live out the great commission. I know for me, I've always really interpreted this individually. I am an American, right? And as an American, I like to do things on my own. We all do. That's what we're taught. We talk a lot about personal responsibility. So I just kind of assume he's talking to 11 different people and I've got my commission, you got your commission and we're all gonna serve Jesus Christ. And at the end of the day, we'll all compare notes with the Father and it'll be fine, but I'm gonna do me, you do you. And we'll all kind of do some good things, but, but it's all an individual thing. Here's the weird thing though. When you look at this text in the Greek and you look at all the U's here, the Y-O-U's, the U's, all of them are plural. When Jesus is speaking to them, he's not speaking to them as individuals, he's speaking to them as a group. He says, you go, collectively, you go and make disciples. You go teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. I am with you always. He's talking to them collectively, not just as individuals, but as a group. Now, it's certainly true that Jesus is with us individually, and it's certainly true that Jesus gives us individual things to do that might be different from others in life. But when it comes to this grand commission, the last thing that he's going to say to his apostles, when you really look at this text, he's not simply talking to them as individuals, he's talking to them as a group. And look, that's important. If it's an individual commission, then it really is all on you. You gotta figure this out. You have this task. You have these things to do. It's all on you, but what if it's not? What if it's not all on you? What if this command isn't simply for you as an individual? What if he means for us to do this commission together? And only together can we actually accomplish these things. 
Well, in order to test that hypothesis, we would really need to look through the rest of the New Testament. How then does the Lord move from this point forward when you look out into the rest of the New Testament? What do we actually see? Well, for that, we would need to get an overview of Acts. Acts is the what happens right after this event. That's why the book of Acts is actually going to start with the same event. It will start with not the Great Commission, but Jesus' ascension. He ascends back into heaven. And if you have not read the book of Acts or have not done it recently, I would encourage you to do so. It is a fascinating read. Tons of things happen. It is a long book, right? But there's a lot that goes on in there. But here's generally what begins to happen. Jesus ascends back to the Father. The apostles are going to wait 10 days. 10 days later, there in Jerusalem, Pentecost will happen. Tongues of fire are going to fall, and the Holy Spirit is going to fill not just the apostles, but everyone in the room. All of them are filled with the Holy Spirit. They will then go out. They will preach the gospel. Peter will preach a sermon. 3,000 people will get saved. The Holy Spirit comes upon all of them. All of them, not just the apostles. Men and women, young and old, all of them receive the Holy Spirit. And then they begin to go out and they profess more. And now thousands more people come to faith in Christ. And so this moves on in Jerusalem. Everything's going well. And then the church gets persecuted. Then the church scatters. It goes out into everywhere. By the time you get to the end of Acts, you are beginning to see the Great Commission fleshed out. It starts in Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. By the end of Acts, the gospel is no longer just here in Jerusalem. It has gone into Judea, Samaria, and yes, even into parts of Europe and Asia. The gospel is already going forth. So it's not staying put with a few individual people. No, it is building and growing. You are seeing God moving through his people as a whole. And if I really look at Acts, I see three main things that help me understand what God is doing. Three things that help me understand the movement of the Lord. The first thing we must understand is that it's powerful. It's powerful. The movement of the Holy Spirit is powerful in Acts. You cannot miss it. God's power through the Holy Spirit is moving. Listen, when Jesus ascends back up into heaven, he doesn't simply sit down to the right hand of the Father and says, whoo, go and take a millennium off and just sits there for a while. He immediately sends his Holy Spirit. It's his spirit that he sends into his people, into Peter, uh, John, all the rest of the guys. It's, It's Jesus sending his spirit and that spirit is active. You see salvations, you see bold sermons, you see answered prayers, you see healings, you see miracles, you see visions, you see people getting let out of prison by angels, you see an incredible move of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. You cannot miss how powerful it is. Jesus was moving through all of his people in this book. And if that was true in Acts, then please understand, it's still true today. What God began then, he is still doing. Because the same Holy Spirit that started in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and began to move it towards the end of the earth, guess what? We're a part of that ends of the earth. The gospel went forward through continents and through centuries until finally it got to America, till finally it got to Alabama, till finally it got to Shelby County, till finally it got to Highway 41. And it got to us. The Holy Spirit has been moving. He is still active. He is still present in us as his people. You can't understand Acts without seeing the powerful move of the word of God. And not just the word, but the spirit of God in Acts. But here's the second thing. It's messy. It's messy. This is probably the most perplexing and simultaneously the most encouraging thing I see in the scriptures. 
Because in the midst of this amazing work of God in Acts, it does not go off without a hitch. There are quite a few hitches. Read the book of Acts. There are ups and then there are downs. Things don't go like you think they're going to go. Peter has a problem initially with the gospel going to the Gentiles. He's really interested in the Jews and has to have visions for the Lord to say, hey man, this ain't staying just with you. The gospel's going to the Gentiles, to the rest of the world. Peter's gotta wrestle with that. He's not there initially. People in the church don't always act right. Ananias and Sapphira lie about how generous they are and God kills them. That's in the Bible. That is crazy. Go check that out. It might scare you. I mean, look, there's all kinds of craziness go on there. You've got organizational changes. As the church exponentially grows, the apostles did not have a plan for this. They're constantly changing their organizational structure. This is how the deacons actually come to be. It's like, we gotta have help. There's gotta be a different structure here. We can't handle all the things that are happening. So they're constantly kind of doing things differently. There's persecution of the church. All of a sudden, this grand organization is now going to be scattered to the four winds. And then people don't always get along. Sometimes they do, and then sometimes they don't. Peter and Paul get along until they don't. And Paul's calling Peter out in public. That must have been fun. Paul and Barnabas did a whole bunch of great good together until Paul and Barnabas didn't want to do that anymore. And they didn't. Paul and John Mark, they were great for the first journey. And then John Mark abandoned them. And so he wasn't so happy about him the next time. So they didn't work until later on when they were okay again. There's all these ups and downs. Everybody doesn't get along at all points. There are friction points. There are problems. There's confusions. There's setbacks. All of that is right there in the book of Acts. Now, here's the thing. Don't forget what I just told you. There was a powerful move of the Holy Spirit, and it all didn't go off perfectly. And those two things exist simultaneously. The Holy Spirit is not turning on and off. He's not coming and going. The same Holy Spirit who is present doing all of those incredible miracles throughout the book is still there even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, and even when it doesn't go off right. He's still there. Do you see why that's perplexing? We would assume that if the Holy Spirit's there, everything would just be perfect. That's not always the case. But it's also really encouraging because it means for screw-ups like us, the Holy Spirit's still here. That even when we don't get it all right, the Holy Spirit is still here. Man, that means that we're still a part of what God is doing even when it's not 100% perfect. So it's powerful, it's messy. Here's the third thing though, it's corporate. Corporate, it's communal. The story of Acts is not about one person or a few people, it's about the church. You see, it would be very easy for Jesus just to have passed the mantle off to one guy. Peter is the obvious choice there, right? You just give it to Peter. He's the first pope, right? Isn't that how that works? So you just give it to Peter, and then we just kind of pass it on down, and we just have like this one guy throughout history. That's not what you see. Peter's there at the beginning, but it's typically Peter and John or Peter and the other apostles. But then you have all these other names, names like Stephen and Philip, Silas, Barnabas. And then Paul comes on the scene. Now you got Peter doing things, and now you got Paul doing things as well. You have all of these different people doing different things. It's not localized in one person. It's now going in lots of different places. You might say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't Peter just basically hand off to Paul? Doesn't Paul write most of the New Testament? Isn't Paul really kind of the focus of a lot of that? Actually, no. Paul's always talking to other people. Read his letters. 
His letters are always Paul and Timothy, Paul and Silas, Paul and whoever, writing to the churches. At the end, he's talking about, hey, all of us here, give greetings to all of you there. He's talking to churches. These letters are, are literally addressed to churches. What about First and Second Timothy? Listen, even there, even though he's addressing it to Timothy, he is expecting this to be read to the church, which is how we have it today. So even there, Paul's not talking to individuals, he's talking to the church as a whole. This is honestly a very much akin to what Jesus does in Genesis. When God creates everything, he makes Adam and Eve, puts them in the garden, and then he gives them a command. First command is this, be fruitful and multiply. There need to be more of you. Fill the earth and subdue it. He's not simply focused on these two individuals. He says, no, the goal is that there would be more of you, that my kingdom would come, my will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. There needs to be more of you. So it's not just about a few individual people. It is about God's church moving out into the world. We cannot understand Acts without understanding that it is communal. Doesn't the Great Commission begin to make sense now? If Jesus was talking to individuals, we all have individual things to do, but listen to the kind of things he's asking us to do. He says, go make disciples, baptizing them. Who baptizes people? Well, typically not us as individuals. If you're doing that, you should probably stop, right? (laughs) You want to just go baptizing people randomly, right? Who does that? Churches do that. Teaching them all that I have commanded you. Whose job is that? How do you teach someone systemically Everything that Jesus taught. Can you do that? I don't even know if I can do that. To systemically teach people everything that Jesus taught, you need a ton of teachers. You need mentors. You need guides. You need examples. You need lots of different people to fully share everything that Jesus did and said. These are actions of a church, not just of individuals. What if it's not all on you What if it's not all on you as an individual to do everything? What if it's on us? What if the Lord has built us to be his hands and feet, his body that we collectively together go to fulfill the great commission? We go and make disciples. We baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We teach each other and everyone to obey all that Jesus has commanded us. And the Lord will be with us always in the midst of it. It's communal in nature. If that is true, if that's really what the Lord is after, then that changes how we are to work forward. This changes how we are to look at things. And look, We not only see that in Acts, you begin to see it throughout the rest of the New Testament. You see this as the church rolls forward in time and begins to begins to have to work out. How does that work out in practice? How do people do that? Will you see them doing this as a church? So flip now, if you will, to Ephesians chapter four. I'll put this up on the screen as well, but go ahead and look in your Bible too, if you will. Ephesians chapter four, starting in verse eleven. Now look, if you've been a long-time double oak person, you probably recognize this passage. This is kind of a banner passage for us here at the church because in this one passage, we see all three of our core values. We have three core values as a church. They are maturity, community, and charity. Maturity, community, and charity. We say those words a lot. Maturity means this. We want to be Christ-centered in all that we do. 
that everything is rooted in Jesus Christ. We want to become more like him. As a church, for all of us here, we ought all to be growing in our spiritual maturity, growing in our relationship with him. But that happens in the context of community. We need to live in Christ-connected community, not just a group of people, but people who love the Lord, people who know the Lord, our brothers and sisters. We have people that we get to live out the gospel with. They see it in us, we see it in them, and as we are all trying to grow in Christ, we have this context of community in which that happens. I'm not off by myself. I should be vitally connected to other believers in community. And then that leads to charity. And by that word, we mean love, all right? So we're living out the command of the Lord, the new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you, all right? So the love that God pours into us, we are then to share with one another and we pour out on the world around us. So maturity, community, and charity, all right? I want you to see if you see those in this passage. Remember, time has gone forward. We're no longer in Pentecost. This is years, possibly decades later, And so the church has had to get into a routine. They've had to figure out a system. They've had to figure out what life looks like year after year. And look at how Paul instructs them. Verse 11, it says this. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. All right, did you see them? Maturity, community, charity, did you see them? Because they're all right there in that passage. Maturity, we are to grow up in our faith. We are to grow up as believers. How? Into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the goal for us, is that we would all not be stagnant or plateaued. We would all be growing into the fullness of Christ. There ought to be spiritual maturity. But how does that happen? Well, in community, right? We are to literally seek after the unity of the faith. More so, so than that, we're connected by, 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 by sinews and ligaments bound together to be a body together. We are to do this as a body. We are to do this as one, not as a collection of individuals, but as a single body. And then how do we do that? Through charity. We speak the truth in love. The body builds itself up in Love, love is the connective tissue that helps keep us together so that we can grow to be more like Christ, maturity, community, and charity. But I really want to point you back to verses 11 and 12 for a moment, because notice this. He says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. All right, depending on how you really break this down, there are either three, four, or five different offices or types of leadership in the church. Some people put shepherds and teachers together, and some people say apostles aren't really a thing anymore. But however you interpret it, there's either three, four, or five different types of leadership in the church. So you don't just get one, you get multiples, right? It's not just about one person. It's about a lot of leaders. And then look at this. All of those offices are plural, 
apostles, prophets, teachers. It takes a ton of teachers and shepherds to effectively shepherd a congregation. It takes a ton of teachers to effectively teach a congregation. You can't just have one or two people. You got to have lots of people to do this. And then look at verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Right? So it's not even about what all of those folks do. All the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, that's great and all. But their job is not to do the work of ministry. Their job is to equip the church so that we do the ministry. It's about what we do. Do you see the Great Commission? God is not simply charging the prophets, the evangelists, the teachers. He's saying, no, we as his church are to fulfill the Great Commission. And I've given you these leaders to help equip the body, the saints, so that we together can actually go do that. It's plural. And so look, we all don't do everything. We all have a role to play. We all have a different part to play. We do this together. We have, a, have a, a job, a commission together. We are vitally connected that together we can go and fulfill the great commission. It's not all on you. It's on us. But let's think just for a moment on the implications of that statement. If that is true, then what does that mean about how I interact with the church? What does that mean then about how I try to fulfill the Great Commission? How do I obey Jesus and follow him through in the Great Commission? Well, I would need to do that in the context of his church. Why? Because all through the New Testament and all through church history, this is how you see God moving. So if that's the case, can I just encourage us in a couple different ways, a couple different things that we would need to do. If, if that's really how God is moving, if this is what we see, that it's more communal rather than just individual, what would that actually look like in our lives? A couple different things. The first is this, we would need to be connected. We, as his people, need to be connected vitally, truly to one another, it means that we would need to be in actual real relationship with one another. And so that ought to be a question for us. Are we vitally connected to the local church? Not just the church as a whole. Are you vitally connected through relationship to the local church? That can manifest itself in a couple of different ways. The first is membership. Now look, that word membership freaks some people out because churches do membership differently. They've done it differently all throughout uh, the world. Sometimes people just don't even do membership at all. There's churches now, they just, they've just given up on membership. It's just, ah, it doesn't matter, just come show up, it'll be fine. And so they don't even know who, who people are because we're just kind of there. It's just kind of like whoever's there, we're kind of hanging around. But how do you actually know who's actually there? Other times people have abused it on the, on the other side. Um, I, I grew up Baptist. Uh, I love my Baptist heritage. I am grateful and thankful for my Baptist heritage and all that it has given to me. Uh, I am actually proud of it. Uh, however, uh, not everything the Baptist did uh, was great. Uh, and one of those things I learned being a Baptist was Baptist math. Y'all know what Baptist math is? Baptist math goes like this. How many people go to your church? We have 7,000 members who are a part of this church. That is amazing. How many people come on Sunday morning? About 350. You see the problem. That's Baptist math. Well, why do they say 7,000? Because there's some list somewhere where every person who's ever been a part of that and died 40 years ago is still on that list. They said, we got 7,000 members. No, you don't. 
If they're not actively engaged, if they're not actively connected in real relationship to one another, you're not actually a member. I've heard some of us, some of us here say this. Well, Adam, I'm not a member here. I'm still a member at my home church. I'm a member of the church I grew up in. I'm a member of my home church. Hadn't been there in 20 years. Uh, I, you know, but it's my home church. I'm still a member there. I hate to tell you this. You're not. You're not. How do you know my name's on a roll? Your name is on a roll. Your name is on a piece of paper that Jesus doesn't care about. No one cares. What matters is if you're connected. Do you have relationships? Are you bound together by love and the Holy Spirit with real people? Look, that can always be your home church. You always have affinity for them. But if you're not involved in their life and they're not involved in your life, it's not membership. So membership is not about checking a box or making a really long list or, or saying I did this thing. It's about recognizing we're actually members of a church. Now, conversely, I've heard other people in the church say this. Well, look, I feel like a member. I mean, why do I really need to go through like the process of like becoming a member? And honestly, I've just been here so long. If I went up and joined, people feel it weird because they would have thought I was already a member. Now I'm not. I'm doing the thing. I'm embarrassed. All right, and so, and I get that, right? There's more of you here thinking that way. He's talking about me. I am. And a lot of others of you, right? And so here's the thing. Look, yes, it actually matters if you make the commitment. Because what would you say to somebody who said, well, we don't really need to get married, do we? I mean, look, let's just sleep together. Let's live together. I feel married. It's fine, right? I mean, who needs to really get all bogged down with the commitment and the responsibility of actually making official declaration to you and to the world that I actually love you? Let's just pretend, Right? Okay, well, we wouldn't agree with that. What's the same thing with our congregation? To say, look, if this is the place God has put you, if this is the place where God is calling you, if this is the place where you're going to be connected, invested, involved, then make the commitment. Look, we did this in the first service. We're going to do here in the second service in just a little bit. I hope there's more of us. We're doing every service as we go forward. When folks come up, I hope you recognize this is not pro forma. We don't just do this because it's a ritual. When people come up, we say, hey, are you making a commitment to this particular congregation, the people in this room, the ones who came in the service before? And then when we ask you, we're not just saying, we like them, I guess so. And so they can kind of join the church. You're making a commitment to say, we are going to share our gifts and abilities with new brothers and sisters. Yes, you're now a part of our body. It matters if you're a member Look, we're not just trying to build a role or have numbers or to say, we got, I don't even know how many members do we have. I mean, look, but it matters that you have made a commitment before God and others to say, listen, this for this season is my church and I need them and they need me. Some of you need to be members. Some of you just need to take that plunge and say, it's time that I actually became an official member. It's a very easy process. We would love to get you started in that process starting this week. But here's the second thing. If we need to be connected, you need to be involved. You need to be involved. Because again, the goal wouldn't just be, hey, join the church and then that's it. And then we don't see you. No, the, the goal is that you would get involved, that you would get connected, you would be in the life of the church. Because remember, membership is about relationship. It, it's about loving one another. That the love God pours into us, we pour out on one another. Well, that requires involvement. It requires investment. Look, we're not casting right now, but I said this to the online crowd. I looked directly into the camera and said, we're not going to cast forever. We're not doing the live stream forever. We're not. Do you know why? Because many of you did this for a while, just like we all did. There is a distinct difference between watching at home and being here in the room. Is there not? There is. 
We need those folks back. Now look, there's always gonna be cases. We have always had shut-ins. We've always had people who couldn't be here. There are always gonna be exceptions to this rule. But for many people, we have just gotten kind of a little bit comfortable and said, well, it's just easier to watch it later. It's easier just to watch it online. You cannot pretend it's the same thing. You can't. Because guess what? Being here to hear the worship. Did you hear one another sing earlier? Did you hear that? Were you not encouraged by that? Okay, it doesn't feel that way online. You don't get that there. Man, I was blown away. Both services here, and I can't tell you how much encouraged my soul to hear you singing. Well, I got that because I'm here. Okay, well, that's important. All right, but here's the thing. It's not just for the folks who are online. I, let's talk to the sporadic attenders, some little bit of straight talk, all right? It, it also matters that you're here more than once a month. Here's the crazy thing. If you grew up going to church two, three times a week, you need to understand that is no longer the norm. Right now in America, twice a month is the norm. The norm. Once a month is becoming more common. This is what people do with church attendance today. We say, hey, I'm just gonna show up once a month and assume it's the same. Here's what we need to understand. It's not. Because if you're only showing up once a month, how can you build meaningful relationships? If you're only showing up once a month, how can we build anything with consistency? How can you get to know people and let them get to know you if I'm only here once a month? How's that actually going to work? If you're not actually engaged and involved in the ministries of the church, you're not engaged and involved with the other people in the church, how can you actually love and be loved by other people if I'm not actually engaged? And look, this has real practical world impact. Depending on how engaged you are, depending on how involved you are in the local church, this is going to change what actually happens in the real world. So I dug deep into my stat bag uh, to kind of find a couple different things. I wanna show you just some of the things that change with consistent church involvement and it really goes across the board. First off, let's talk about our kids. Let's talk about our children for just a little bit and the impact consistent church involvement has on children. This is a study that was done by Mississippi State University uh, a few years ago and here's what it said. It said, crunching data on more than 21,000 children enrolled in kindergarten and first grade from the spring 2000 wave of early childhood longitudinal study kindergarten class. Let me just stop right there. That was a lot of words. Here's what this means. They started a study in 2000. They studied them for over 12 years. All right, so the stats came out about five, six years ago. Here's what they found after a decade of looking at 20,000 kids. The sociologists discovered that among several aspects of parental religiosity, church attendance exerts a consistent and positive effect on five measures of child development. A father's and a mother's church attendance, they found, each strongly correlated with a child's approach to learning as evaluated by parents and teachers. In other words, the more that a child's mother or father participates in public worship on a weekly basis, the higher the rating of a child's eagerness to learn, variety of interests, creativity, persistence, and responsibility. Do you know what that scored higher than? preschool. The impact of being here week after week had a bigger positive impact on the well-being of children than being in preschool. That does not mean take your kids out of preschool. But it also to say there are real-world impacts from having your kids here week in and week out. What about our teenagers? New study, I just saw this last week in Christianity Today, new study from a group out of Harvard says this. They studied 12,000 teenagers over a 10-year span And they said, guess what? When we look at all of these kids, if you wanted to see the highest amount of impact for adult well-being, young adult well-being, the highest positive impact to reduce the incidence of depression, uh, premature sexual activity, suicide, and substance abuse, the highest impact on all of those fronts was consistent religious worship attendance. Do you know what it was higher than? Private Christian education. 
There was more impact on a teenager's life by being involved every week in your church than private Christian education. I was shocked by that. The researchers were shocked by that. That's what happens when we're consistently involved. It has real-world impact. What about marriages? Let's talk about marriages for a second. I'm going to blow up a stat for you. I've been waiting so long to do this. This is great. Okay, so when we talk about marriages in America, there's this one well-worn stat that everybody talks about, right? The divorce rate in America is what percent? It is, yeah, we keep hearing this. That's completely untrue. I did a full deep dive on where this stat came from and what it looks like. The divorce rate in America is not 50%. It takes about four seconds to debunk it. Think about all your friends and say, did half of them get a divorce? No. The actual divorce rate in America is about 33%. 33% is what you're actually looking, looking at there. Now, the other stat that goes along with it is that the divorce rate in the church is exactly the same as in the world. So that the divorce rate in the church would be, we should be 33%, right? People keep telling us it's 50%. That's not true. So when they actually looked at this, here's what they found. Uh, this is uh, Bradford Wilcox. He actually partnered with Barna. He and another lady partnered with Barna who came up with the original stats. This is a unique story. Here's what it says. Active conservative Protestants who regularly attend the church are 35% less likely to divorce compared to those who have no affiliation. Now, here's the weird part. Nominally attending conservative Protestants are 20% more likely to divorce compared to secular Americans. Go figure. It matters how much you participate. But the idea that there's more divorce in the church is actually wrong. For people who are committed, for people who are coming week after week, for people who are invested in the lives of their congregations, you're 35% less likely to divorce. So there's impact for your marriages. What about political discourse? read an article in 2017 in The Atlantic by a guy named Peter Beiner, and he said this. When you see the, the decline in religious attendance and religious participation, you are seeing an uptick in the rancor of our political debate. As people are less engaged with others in their congregation, you're seeing people more turn to a political idolatry and, ideal, and ideation, and our discourse is becoming more rancorous. He wrote this in 2017 before the last three years, which is exactly what you're seeing is the rise of the nuns. People aren't coming as much. You're actually seeing this, uh, this increase in the religious or in political discourse. It's actually affecting our whole culture. But then also let's talk about our health. And this, these stats have been out there forever. These are consistent. They're across the board. You can find this anywhere. Look at this. Uh, estimates combining data across cohorts suggest that compared with those who never attended religious services, individuals who attended services at least once per week had a lower risk of all-cause mortality by 26%, heavy drinking by 34%, current smoking, by 29%. Service attendance was also inversely associated with a number of psychosocial distress outcomes. Depression, anxiety, hopelessness, and loneliness. That means you have less of those. And positively associated with psychosocial well-being outcomes, i.e. positive affect, life satisfaction, social integration, and purpose in life. You get more of those. When people are engaged consistently in their congregation, these are the ways it actually affects your health. How you participate has real world implications. Now, hear me. Let me be very clear here. I am not trying to entice you into church attendance by all the benefits that it might bring. Oh, my God, it'll fix my kid. Right? Look, that's not what we're talking about here. If you don't know Jesus Christ, none of this is going to happen. 
If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, none of this will occur. If you are not living by the gospel of Jesus Christ, none of this is gonna manifest itself. The goal here is not to get more things for ourselves. These are simply the results. These are the impacts of being a part of what God has called us to be a part of. But please, do not believe the lie that when I drop down my attendance to once a month, it's exactly the same as if I was there every week because it's not. It's not. And the world will tell you, you can do everything. You get, it's all on you. You got to fix it all. And as long as you go every now and then, or you used to go in the past, it'll all be the same. And it's not true. And so look, let's follow what the Lord has asked us to do. Let's be connected. What does that mean? It means join a community group. Get to know some people. Come to Double Oak University, learn, grow with other people. Join a women's Bible study, a men's Bible study. Come to a men's retreat this weekend. Man, get to know, get to know some different people. Man, find some relationships. Grow to be connected to other people. Put the work in. I know it's awkward at times. Put the work in. And what you will see is God working not just in you, but through you. And then he will begin to work through all of us together to accomplish his great commission. We'll see the renewal of the Holy Spirit we're all looking for. But it requires involvement. How might the Lord be calling you to be involved this season? Two quick th- more things before we go. The second thing, though, is baptism. Do you hear what Jesus says? Go, therefore, into all the world, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. When people become Christians, we baptize them. Now, we can argue about the how, of, uh, how we do that, and, and churches will do that, but all Christians baptize, all of us. We, nobody disagrees about that. And what we understand from the scriptures is that baptism is a mark of death and resurrection. When you go under that water and you come out of the water as if you have died and you have come back to life again. That's not happening in those waters, but you are signing for us. You are showing to us that you have been born again, that God is real, that he loves you. He died on a real cross to die for our real sins, that he lives today and has forgiven you. And you are actually now born again. You have brand new life in Jesus Christ. The old you is gone and the new you is here because of Jesus. And we do that publicly. We declare in front of other people, I want everybody to know that Jesus is real. He loves me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God because he gave his life for me. We declare that by baptism to everyone around. This is what happens after salvation. Now let me be very clear here as well. Baptism is not about repentance. So if you've done something really bad, you might say, Adam, I just need to get baptized again. Okay, I just, let me just get in here. Let me just baptize again. Okay, well, baptism's not about remnants. Adam, I, I, I've been gone from the church. Well, I just need to kind of turn over a new leaf. I think you just need to get baptized again and start over. Look, when Jesus died for your sins, which sins did he die for? All of them, which means if you've sinned a little in the meantime, you don't need to get baptized to top it off, okay? You're already forgiven for all of it. It didn't go away. But for some of you, let's be honest, since you've come to personal saving faith in Christ, you've never been baptized. For some of you, you've danced around church for a while, but it's been since you've come here at this church. I hear this a lot. It's been since you've come here in this past year, two years, five years, before you finally came to saving faith where you realized God is not only real, he has forgiven me and he is changing my life. And you know without a doubt you're saved. Well, guess what? It's time for baptism. Some of you have never been baptized since your salvation. Guess what? It's time for baptism. Yes, it, but I don't know. I've got to get up in front of people. Yes, that's kind of the point. Look, 
baptism's gonna become increasingly unpopular. Do you know why? Christianity's about to become increasingly unpopular. It matters that we publicly say to everybody, I'm with him. He saved me, he loved me, and I am with him. It matters. Okay. Then you need to be baptized. Because some of you have been putting this on for years. Guess what? It's not going to make you more saved, but it's important. We are to go make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And some of you, you need to get baptized. Here's the final thing. Let's go. Let's go. That's what Jesus said. Go, make disciples. You, collectively, go. Then let's go. Let us go. Let's do this together. God has put us here at this time and this season to build his kingdom, to share his gospel, that others might come into faith in him, to come celebrate with us, to enjoy salvation. He's put us here at this time. If this is the place where God has put you, if this is where God has you during this season of your life, I don't know where you've been before, but if this is a place God's leading you and putting you, then man, let's, get, let's be members. Let's get involved. If you need to be baptized, let's be baptized. And then together, let's go fulfill the great commission that his kingdom would come and that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Bow with me if you will. Look, I don't know where you are, but we started this worship service with anybody. Anybody can be saved. There's not a sin that's too great. There's not a place that's too far. That's beyond the grace of God. Maybe today some of you need to give your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe today he's speaking to you and saying, I am real. I did die for you. Your sins are real. And there's incredible love for you that you can't fix it. You can't do this. It's not all on you because you couldn't do it if it was. But Jesus Christ has saved us. And then he's put us in a family. I said, I don't expect it to be all on you, but your family needs you. And you need your family. And together, this spiritual body, his body, can go and love and serve others in Jesus' name. I wonder if he's calling you today. Calling you to be saved. Calling you to be a member. Calling you to be baptized. Calling you to be involved. Let's listen. Let's follow through. Let's see the renewal that we're all praying for. He's still here. He's still moving. We're not perfect. We never will be. But he's here. Let's go. See what he will do. So Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this family of faith. Thank you for guiding us through the chaos of these past years. Lord, we have absolutely no idea what's coming. I just know you're here and you're moving. So can you stir us? Can you help us? Can you bind us together? Can you build relationships? Can you make us that body you want us to be that as people come and they interact with us, whether it be here on Sunday morning or out during the week or at anything that we do, they wouldn't see us, they'd see you. They would want to know you. So Lord, use us, change us, bind us together, transform us, and we will follow after you. We love you, Lord. It's your name we pray. And we all said, amen.